Take your Bibles and turn with me this evening, please, to Hebrews 13. Technically looking at verses 9 through 14, although we will not get past verse 9 tonight, uh, it will be one of several parts as we speak tonight of grace. Grace part one, the superior way. We are walking through the independent exhortations of Paul toward the end of his address to this group of Hebrew men and women. We opened Hebrews 13 with a near carbon copy exhortation of Romans chapter 12, verses 10 through 15. Then we talked about marriage, and we talked about contentment, and uh, we talked about leaders in the faith last time we were together. But from the beginning of Hebrews, we have been exploring Paul's argument in relation to faith that insists that we, because we live in this time of grace and not the time of the law, because we live in this time of the New Testament rather than the Old Testament, because we live under the covenant of Christ rather than the covenant of Moses, that we live in a superior or under a superior covenant with superior promises and, and thus not just superior promises, but also heightened responsibility and accountability. And this ought to compel us, as we have seen throughout the book, to deeper, the deepest, in fact, essence of personal devotion. And in many ways, our passage today is somewhat of a summary of these ideas written specifically within the context of uh, the Hebrew trial. And, And today, we're going to keep ourselves within that context. And what I mean by the Hebrew trial is the Hebrew temptation as it would relate to stepping outside of grace. And of course, within the that Context: the Hebrew temptation would be to step specifically into the law again, right? To step back under the old covenant, the covenant given by disposition of angels, going all the way back to chapters 1 and 2, um, that Christ is so, so significantly superior over. And so we're going to stay very focused today, in a sense, on that, on the law and the nature of Christ's superiority to it. And it's going to be a a very different sermon. I don't know if it's going to be shorter or longer. I I suspect it might be shorter than a typical sermon, uh, but I I don't exactly know, except that it's it's going to be different. And the reason why it's going to be different is because um, I, I felt compelled to really allow the scriptures to speak for themselves. So we're going to be reading a lot of scripture this evening. Uh, Three very large passages of scripture, walking through them and allowing the the argument that Paul is making. Uh, This is one of the things about when we walk through an epistle, right, is that sometimes we can lose the forest for the trees, is you spend so much time on each individual verse, one verse here, three verses there, that you kind of forget the overarching narrative. And we try to compensate for this in a couple of ways. One of those ways is that uh, I preach a book sermon at the beginning, right? And I give you that overarching look at the beginning of the book. And and that's one way. Uh, Another way is, is a little bit by nature. Nature in that I'm, I'm a very contextual preacher, right? So if you were to step halfway through a series, you'd probably be a little bit lost because I'm hinging so much of what I'm saying today on what I've said over the past weeks and I'm not repeating myself all the time. So you kind of have to go back and listen to those messages to get the fullness of these messages, right? So, so we have some ways of combating that propensity to get a little bit lost in the text, but it's still so easy to get lost in the text, And so we're going to do these larger chunks of scripture, and I hope that it will be helpful and a blessing to you. So we keep ourselves within this context this evening and use this week as a sort of summary of so much of what Paul has taught to this point 
And then in the next several sermons in Hebrews, next week we'll take a week off because of Resurrection Sunday, uh, but then we're going to, to, to kind of broaden our perspective. And we'll see where the text allows us to do that this evening. And we'll talk about the broader themes of what the text is speaking of itself. So our text begins in verse 9, and it will end tonight in verse 9 too, actually. But in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9, the Bible says this, Be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. So our text today is another command, right? We've seen several commands and many of of the kind of listings that we see in Hebrews chapter 13 as it relates to these things are in fact commands. Uh, They're Greek commands, they're in the imperative uh, mood and, and we see that imperative idea to these commands, except in this case it's a negative command. Be not carried away and he says be not carried away with divers and strange doctrines. And the words really matter here as we seek to understand Paul's meaning. Now, the word doctrines speaks of teachings, right? Uh, The teachings that the listeners would submit themselves unto. So uh, when we think of the, the, the term doctrine, we think very, very theological. And we think of kind of systematic doctrines and, and, and you have the doctrine of salvation, you have the doctrine of, uh, of, of last things, and you have the doctrine uh, of the church. And you can go through all of these different doctrines. And yet, any time that we're dealing with teaching about the, about the things of the Word of God and To be quite honest, this word goes well beyond just the teaching of the things of the Word of God. It would be considered teaching or doctrine. The word doctrine, as it's translated, is meant to root it in theological understanding because that's what the Bible is typically talking about. But it's really a more general word than that. So we're speaking of teachings and we are speaking of spiritual teachings here. And the warning is against spiritual teachings that are characterized in two ways. The first is diverse. And the second is strange. Now, the word divers in the King James Bible simply means various sorts. It's a generalizing word intended, in a sense, to make the umbrella of the teachings as wide as necessary to encompass Paul's purpose in this statement. And that's where, starting next time we're in Hebrews, we're going to be able to broaden our umbrella beyond just the legal dangers of the Hebrew falling back into the Old Testament law. And it's a danger for for the church as well, which is why we'll talk about it. But we can go beyond that to other other, uh, diverse sorts of teachings, other uh, various sorts of teachings. But the more significant word for our understanding is this second word, diverse and strange. Now, the idea of something being strange is something that is out of place. Uh, We might have a tendency to think of the word as something that maybe stands out or is out of sync. But it's not so much stands out or out of sync as much as it is, as you see there in the definition, foreign. Now, it's the word xenos, from which we get our word, say, xenophobia, right? And if you hear that word um, uh, floating around in, in our day, the, 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 the xenophobia or the xenophobia, the idea of xenophobia means that you're afraid of those who are not like you, right? You're afraid of strangers. You're afraid of outsiders. And so you see this, the, the root there in this Greek word xenos, which is the idea of a foreigner. Now, as we think through this concept, I would caution you about this. The idea of strange here is not weird, It's not really out there. It's simply foreign. Foreign or out of place. In regard to what? Well, we're talking about doctrines here. So it's not necessarily talking about weird doctrines. 
really out there doctrines, what it's talking about is foreign doctrines. Foreign to what? Well, we have that answer a little bit, just, just a few, uh, few words later. Foreign to grace. Grace is the foundation of the Christian life. And any doctrine, any teaching that is outside of, that is not naturally in line with, that does not find compatibility or synchronization with grace would be considered a strange doctrine. So there are legitimate strange doctrines out there, right? Some people, their doctrines about angelology, there are some strange doctrines out there and doctrines as to uh, how to interpret the Old Testament. There's some strange doctrines and you get into numerology and there's some strange doctrines going on. And those are weird, right? Those are, those are out there a little bit. Those are things that are, 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 are really not normal and, and, and you, you have to kind of uh, put on your, your tinfoil hat and, and draw a bunch of lines from one thing to another to get to those doctrines and people are lured to those things and and those would be strange in this context as well but but take note a strange doctrine as it is spoken of here in Hebrews 13:9 can sound normal rational down the line pretty good but maybe they miss maybe they tweaked a couple of definitions or maybe they sought to impose a understand an Old Testament understanding upon a New Testament concept. Just something as simple as that would qualify as a strange doctrine if, in fact, it is foreign to grace, which means grace becomes the foundation. Grace becomes the ruler, the canon. Grace becomes the measuring stick by which we measure whether or not doctrine is true or false. Does it align with grace? That should be step number one in our thinking about a doctrine. If it does not, then it is a strange doctrine. And in this case, we find that it's Judaism that Paul is speaking of here as he speaks of a strange doctrine. Now, Judaism has some strange things in it if you get into uh, the Kabbalah and whatever else, uh, some of the mystic elements. uh, But as it relates to just the standard Old Testament law, I mean, we go to that. We reference that all the time. We'll talk more about that. The character of God is revealed there. The, 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 the realities of, of, of God's uh, truths and, and of God's judgments are revealed there. We hold the Old Testament in high esteem and very rightly so. And yet for us to submit ourselves to things in the Old Testament law that are counter to grace would be to submit ourselves to strange doctrines. So the degree to which something is a strange doctrine is not the degree to which the teaching is unusual, but the degree to which any set of teachings operates in contradiction to the principles of grace. That is what our, that's our context for this idea of strange doctrine. And that is, in fact, the contrast that we see Paul make here in Hebrews 13, verse 9, where he goes on to say, for it is a good thing, and notice this contrast, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. This is him explaining why it is that they should not be carried away with strange, diverse and strange doctrines. Why? Because it's a good thing for the heart to be established with grace. Not with meats which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Your heart cannot be established with ritual. 
Your heart cannot be established with religion. Once again, that does not mean that ritual and religion cannot have a place in your observances. We did one this evening. An ordinance, the Lord's table. It has a place in our observances, but our heart is not established in those things. Our heart must be established with grace. So Paul here mentions specifically meats, but he does so as a bit of a shorthand, right? When Paul mentions meats, imagine he's speaking to this Hebrew audience, and he mentions meats, he's speaking about the Judaistic legal system, right? And we can go to various other passages, and we'll go to one this evening. It'll be one of the long ones we read, Colossians, where Paul speaks of meats and drinks and Sabbath days and new moons and feast days and the like. And he'll speak to all of those things. So we've got a little bit of shorthand here, as he says, not with meats, speaking of the Judaistic system. But of course, not only Judaism, correct? But the whole hierarchy of religious systems which demand, as a matter of course, conformity to a set of external religious rituals as the definitive rite of passage in order to get to God or to be right with God. Those those systems whereby they are established by something other than grace. And it just so happens that, in the case of the Hebrews, that would be the Old Testament law. And since chapter 1, verse 1, Paul has been emphasizing the superiority of the covenant of grace in Christ above that of the covenant of the law of Moses by the disposition of angels. Yet, to use the word diverse, as he does here in this verse, naturally broadens that umbrella, broadens that outlook beyond the controversy with the law and extends to any external religious system, which is, by the way, every external religious system, right? It is every system with the exception of biblical Christianity, which is the one that follows Christ, who is the purveyor of the new covenant of grace. Wherefore, to follow grace is to follow Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes into the Father but by him, John 14, 6. Now, I've taught numerous times about the relationship between Christians and the Old Testament law. It actually has been a little while since I've done so, and we might get a little bit deeper into the weeds, depending on how uh, folks react to this over over the next few weeks. Uh, I did preach a a fairly definitive series, I think it was 2019 now, so it's been a few years in the summer of 2019, on Christians and the law. Uh, I believe it was six messages long, and it was very, very thorough. Um, So I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that if if you want some insight into that. Uh, we were we based that in First Timothy chapter one, uh, where Paul speaks to this topic because in fact he speaks to this topic in almost every single one of his epistles. It is a central tenant to the New Testament, which is why I marvel so much that we as as a church and I, I lot myself in here, you know, historically that we as a church, not just Legacy Baptist, but as a church, have missed it so often. As it relates to this topic, why this is a topic which keeps rearing its ugly head generation after generation after generation in the church, uh, because it is something that Paul speaks to so pervasively. But as I said, I've taught this numerous times, the relationship between the Christian and the Old Testament law. But as I say these things, let me clarify a few again. First, I am not saying, nor does the New Testament teach that the Old Testament law is irrelevant to the Christian life. The Old Testament is essential to the Christian life. It is essential to our understanding of the New Testament. It is essential to our understanding of God's character, to God's plan, to man's character, to man's purpose, to why Jesus came, to why he came when he came, to why he came the way he came, to why he had to die, to what would happen afterwards. It is essential to everything that we hold as central doctrines, but it is understood through the light of Jesus' teachings and the teachings of the apostles. 
The Old Testament is essential and it is foundational, but we live in the house that is built upon that foundation. We don't simply live on the foundation. We do not have a foundation laid, pitch a tent on that foundation, and live in the tent on a lovely foundation. No, you build a foundation so that a house can be built on it. And you live in the house that is built on top of the foundation. You don't live in the foundation. The house is what you live in. The house is fundamentally different in kind from the foundation upon which it is built. Grace is fundamentally different from the law. The law is the foundation. The Old Testament is the foundation upon which the New Testament is built. But the New Testament is the house in which we live. And Paul has been saying this since the first verse of Hebrews chapter 1. Now next, I'm not saying nor does the New Testament teach that the Old Testament law is wrong or bad or sinful or anything of the sort. We'll consider that in a moment in one of our passages together. But nearly every New Testament epistle, as I said, emphasizes the reality that the precepts of the Old Testament law are foreign to the doctrines of grace as a means by which to establish our heart before the Lord. Teachings of the supremacy of the Old Testament law in the life of a New Testament believer are, in fact, diverse and strange teachings. They cannot coexist together. And I'm going to approach the proof of this, as I said, in a somewhat different way this evening. I'm going to read large chunks of Scripture. I'm going to stop at points to clarify or to explain. And then we'll just talk about them together. So the Bible says in Romans 7, and you notice I don't give you verses because I'm giving you all of them. In Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. He's speaking, Romans is written to the church of Rome, but he's written to a, a Jewish group of people there. It was, it was Jews there in the church of Rome, so they were very, very familiar. You go back to chapters 1, chapter 2, G, uh, Paul says you call yourself a Jew and you, yeah, and, and you follow the law there right at the beginning of, of, of chapter 2, and you see yourself as a leader of the blind and these sorts of things. So we know he's speaking to a very Jewish audience here, and so he speaks to them that know the law. Know ye not, brethren, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth? For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man." So we see here what Paul does is he actually appeals to the very structure of the law itself related to marriage, whereby a spouse is released from their obligation to the marriage when the other spouse dies. And he says, if we were to have gone all the way back to Romans chapter 6, I didn't want to, to go that far back, but in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And Paul is appealing to that reality in Romans 7, saying, look, if you are dead to sin and alive unto Christ, if you are buried with him and risen again, we'll talk more about that next Sunday night, because the resurrection is coming up, 
If you are born, if you are, are, are born again, buried with him by baptism into death, raised to walk in newness of life, then you are dead to your old, to the, to the old master, right? And that old master, of course, would be sin, but also as he appeals here to the law. Verse 4. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. You are betrothed to a new master under a new covenant. The law itself makes provision for the law to pass away. Continue. Verse 5, for when we were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of the spirit, not in oldness of the letter. The law could do nothing but condemn. Why? Because we could not keep the law. Paul will go on to say that. So we serve then not in the oldness of the letter, but in the newness of the spirit. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. The law is what made me know sin. And that's a wonderful thing. Thank God that the law was there to reveal its sin, to reveal my sinfulness. But the law could not solve my sinfulness. Why? Because all the law could do is tell me how far short I fall. And the moment that I realize that I am a sinner because of the law, I have already breached the law, which means I am worthy of death. So the law was powerless to solve my problem. Wonderful to show me I've got one, though. Wonderful to show me I've got one. Powerless to help me solve it. It wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. For without the law, sin was dead. Outside of the law, Sin was dead. There is no power of, of, of sin. We talked about this a little bit this morning. That humanism desires a moral relativity whereby we dictate morality by how we feel and by what our society wants. Well, in a society like that, there is no power to offenses because I decide what is offensive and what is not, right? In the same way, there is no power to offenses where there is no law to tell me I am breaching them. But when there is a law to tell me that I have breached offenses at that point, the offenses become glaringly obvious to me because I have, in fact, breached said law. We continue. And by the way, this law thus, as he says here, cannot work in me life, only death, right? Verse 9. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. What is he saying there? He's saying that there was a point where he was not fully aware of his sinful state, but when the law entered in and he recognized it, it did nothing but kill him, separate him. He realized that he was absolutely separated from the life of God. He did not give up the ghost, just like we talked about a little bit this morning in uh, Genesis chapter 3 as it related to the nature of death in Genesis 3 when Satan says, ye shall not surely die. And when God says, if you partake of the fruit, you will die. The idea there is not just that you'll give up the ghost, that your body will fall to the ground and you will no longer be there, but rather that you will be separated from God. And the law worked in him death because it revived the reality of sin. He became aware of his separation from God through the law. Verse 10, and the commandment which was ordained to life, if a man should live therein, 
but no man can live therein. I found to be unto death, for sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. The law is a wonderful thing. Was then that which was good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Is the law structured explicitly to make me sin? Did God design the law to create or to, to, to bring about sin in me? Well, no. No, God created the law as a reflection of his holy character, and that is a wonderful thing. The law did not create sin in me. The law exposed my sin. The law showed me the death that was already there. Thus, the law is a wonderful thing because it shines a flashlight upon the darkest recesses of my heart and shows me just how far short I fall. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. You see that? Sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that I do, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. If I'm doing those things that I don't want to do, and the reason why I don't want to do them is because I am acknowledging that the law is good and that I am bad. I am doing it, but I don't want to do it. I do it because I'm carnal, but I don't want to do it because the law is spiritual. And the law tells me I should not be. So the law is good. I am bad. The law is not making me bad. I am bad, and the law is showing me that I am bad. The law has not created the badness in me. The law has exposed the badness in me. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual. I already read that, didn't I? Uh, verse 15. For that which I do... No, I already read that too. Oh, I'm on the wrong slide. <laughs> I was like, what is going on? I've read all this. Let's try verse 17. Now then, it is no more I that do it. Let's start back at verse 16. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. The will is there because the law is good. But how to perform it I find not because I am carnal. The law can't help me with that. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. There's this wonderful law, and it's there, and it's these wonderful commandments, and I would do it. I would keep it, but I can't. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man... But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And that law is the reality of my sin nature in me. There's a law that's warring against the law of God in me, and that is my rebellion. So Paul says in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind... I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Moving right into verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. 
who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So Paul speaks to all of this condemnation which the law brings. And then he says, however, to one who is in Christ Jesus, that condemnation does not exist. Why? Because Jesus solves the problem that the law cannot solve. The law reveals my sin. Jesus cleanses my sin. Jesus solves the problem of the shame and the guilt. Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit in, of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. A new law. Jesus did not give me the power to keep the old law. Take note of that. I hear that a lot with Christians. Well, what the Spirit of God does is it gives me the power to keep the Old Testament law. No, that is not what the New Testament says. The New Testament says there is a new law working in my members that has freed me from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. That w- this is the good law. This is the, the spiritual law. He's not changing context here. Well, pastor, no, this is a different type of law. This is... This is this is, uh, this is sin itself. No, no, he hasn't changed context here. If he did and he didn't tell us, that was not very nice of him. If we keep this in context, he is talking about the law that is good and holy and right. The law that I, I love. The law that shows me the character of God. It could not, however, in that it was weak through the flesh... Do this for me, but God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. The law is holy and right and good, but it is powerless to deliver you. You need something new, not a reformation of the legal system, but an entirely new system. And that is what God did in Christ. He sent his own son who condemns sin in the flesh so that there is no demand for fleshly merit in order to be righteous before God. Rather, the righteousness of the law was fulfilled in Christ on the cross and I received that righteousness imputed unto me by grace through faith. And the moment that Christ paid that debt, the legal system of the Old Testament was retired. It was replaced. It was mothballed. The oldness of the letter gave way to the newness of the spirit of grace. That's Romans 7. Passage number 2. Let's read Galatians chapters 3 and 4. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, for whose eyes, before whose eyes, excuse me, Jesus Christ, hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the faith, no, uh, by, by the flesh? Excuse me. Notice his context here. He asks them. He says, are you so foolish? He calls them foolish Galatians. He says, somebody has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth. And what is this thing that they have deviated from, whereby Paul says that they have not obeyed the truth that, that has been evidently set forth in front of them through Jesus Christ? He said this, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the flesh or by the hearing of faith. And the idea of receiving the Spirit is being saved, right? Being born again. Were you born again through your works or through faith? And every single one of them would say, well, Paul, of course, by faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. That's not, that's not Galatians, that's Ephesians. But for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And so they have that answer. And then he asks this question, are ye so foolish? Take note of this. 
having begun in the spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Is conformity to the law going to sanctify you now that you are Made, uh, now that you are in the spirit. And once again, this is that idea. This is that idea that crops up that says, no, 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 no. Legalism is only trusting in uh, um, my works to save me from my sin. Or no, the, 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 the nature of the Christian life is that God saves me. He gives me a spirit so that I can keep the Old Testament law. These sorts of, these sorts of arguments that we, that we hear. But he says here, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect? Are you completed now in the flesh? Is it now? Now do you say, okay, I've begun in the spirit. Okay, now my works, thanks, I'll take it from here. You've given me your spirit, and now I have to live in this works-based system. Paul says, no. That's foolishness, he says. Verse 4. Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it, yet, if it be yet in vain? He, therefore, that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he hit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Is it the law that empowers that man who is a believer who is working miracles among you to work miracles? Well, no, of course not. It's faith. Your faith does not end at the door of salvation. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's not the day faith ends. You live by faith. You don't enter in only by faith, right? The just shall live by faith. Verse 6, even as Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham in the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, in thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone that continueth not in all the things which are written in the book of the law. To do them. So we have this comparison here. Any man bound to the works of the law is bound to the consequences of the law. Are you really made perfect by the flesh? Do you then submit yourself to the law once you have begun in the spirit? Well, in order to do so, you are not just bound to the expectations of the law. You're bound to its consequences. What are those consequences? Stoning and lashes and barren women and plagues and the like, right? That, those, are the, those are the consequences given in the law. Well, pastor, no, 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 we're not bound to those. Then you're not bound to the law. You cannot be bound to the law in expectation, but not consequence. We are freed from the consequences. We are also freed from the expectations. Of course, does that mean we live lawless? No, 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 no. And, and we're going to talk about that as we continue in grace over the weeks. As a matter of fact, Romans chapter 6, I already quoted it. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. We'll find ourselves back there again. I am not preaching lawlessness in the sense of, of moral relativism this evening. We are discussing the nature of the Old Testament law and the new covenant of grace. So we continue. Verse 11. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. The law is choice and consequence. Do uh, uh, what you do and the result of what you do. That is the law. The law is not a faith-based system. The law is an objective, earth-bound system. Choice, consequence. Action, result. You cannot divorce the two. You cannot say we are bound to the actions, but not the results. 
It does not work. Verse 12. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Christ took that, that we might receive something better, a better covenant. That's what Hebrews is all about. Verse 15. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. When Paul says he speaks after the manner of men, that means he's speaking from a human perspective here. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereunto. So he says, in the human sense, from a human perspective, when a man makes a covenant, if that covenant is confirmed, then it's set. It's settled. You cannot disannul it, and you can't add to it. You can't remove stuff. You can't add stuff. The covenant is the covenant. You sign a contract with someone. The person cannot come up the next week and say, by the way, I'm adding a few things to our deal. I'm just going to write them in the margin here. And, and, and then you say, well, wait a minute. I didn't agree to that. Yes, you did. There's your signature on the bottom of the page. Well, yeah, but you wrote something in after the fact, right? That does, that's not how a covenant works. Uh, I'm just going to erase that part. Well, you can't erase that part. Yes, I can. No, no, you can't, right? The covenant is the covenant. The deal is the deal. You signed your name. I signed my name. This is the deal. So he says here, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man can disannul it and no man can add to it. Now let's talk about Abraham's covenant. Verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He said not and to seeds as of many, but as of one and to thy seed, which is Christ. So he made a covenant to Abraham regarding the seed, which is Christ. And this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, that would be the covenant whereby Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That was a covenant of faith. What did Abraham have to do to obtain the covenant that God promised in Genesis 12 and 15? Nothing. It was not a conditional covenant. God did not say, if you obey me, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. God did not say, if you don't do these things, I will not give you the land. If you don't do these things, I will not give you the seed. It was an unconditional covenant. There were no conditions placed upon Abraham. And that was symbolically ratified in the fact that when God is, uh, uh, ratified or, or when he established the covenant, he had Abraham cut those animals in half, put them on either side of the valley there in, in Genesis 15. Abraham spent all day shooing the birds away so that they wouldn't get a, a hold of these uh, of these animals that were cut in half so that the blood would run down into the trench. And then when it was time to ratify the covenant, God put Abraham to sleep and the, 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 the glory of the Lord passed through that blood on his own. Abraham did not walk through it. Only God walked through it. A one-way covenant, an unconditional covenant. So there was this covenant made and here's what Paul says here. This I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ as to the seed, which is Christ, that's Genesis 15, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul. The law could not disannul what God promised in Abraham. The law could not overwrite, could not reduce or add to anything of what God promised to Abraham. That it should be made a promise of none effect. Verse 18. For if the inheritance be of the law, then it is no more of promise. If Abraham and his seed, that is Christ, had to be, had to be aligned with the law in order to receive the promise, then it is not a covenant of promise. It is a covenant of worth, of merit. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. 
grace. Verse 19, wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. We talked about that in Hebrews chapter, uh, early, right? Remember, quite early in Hebrews, Hebrews 2. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? We already talked about this in Romans 7. God forbid. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. If the law could have redeemed us, it would have redeemed us. But it can't. Verse 22, but the scriptures hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith, which should afterward be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Not just born again by faith, but walk by faith. Remember, that's where he started this. So foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth. Having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? That's where this began. Verse 25, but after that faith has come, here it is, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. The law's purpose has been fulfilled once faith is, is established in us. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. The law was a placeholder, a schoolmaster to show unregenerate men just how far short they fall of the righteousness of God by faith. The law still works wonderfully to that end. You start quoting the Ten Commandments and it's going to make unbelievers and wicked men squirm. It compels men to flee to God for a solution apart from works because no man can be justified by their works before God. But remember the context. Not just justified unto salvation, being born again, but also being made perfect. Sanctification. Not by the works of the law, but by faith. And outside of this, any truth outside of that nature of faith is a diverse and strange doctrine. Doctrines which stand in fundamental contradiction to the principles of grace and so are foreign to the principles of grace. Thus, it is a strange doctrine. We continue. Now I say, this is uh, chapter 5, ver uh, no, no, no we, we ended in verse 26. Let me continue in verse 27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise, not the law, which came 430 years later, which could not disannul the promise of Abraham. We are not the seed of Moses or the seed of the law or the seed of that which was given by disposition of angels. We are the seed of Abraham. Spiritually speaking, the seed of that promise. We are, the, we are the results of that promise given to Abraham on that day as it related to grace. Chapter 5, verse 1. Or chapter 4, verse 1, excuse me. Now I say that an heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world, 
But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his children, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So he says, yes, if you look at, if, if, as he goes back to that manner of man example, when there is an heir and he is a child, he is under a schoolmaster and he doesn't really differ much from the servant. The, 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 the heir will grow up with the children of the servant as his companions, right? They'll go out and they'll play together. They'll spend time together. They'll both be under tutors and governors because that child, his parents are, the, the, the one child is the heir. His parents are the, the masters. And then the other child, his parents are the servants, but they're both children. They're both under tutors and governors. But then there is a time that comes where there is a huge divergence between the child of the servant and the heir, a parent, when he becomes the heir and the child becomes, the other child becomes a servant. He says, we are sons, we are not servants. And if so, then when the time comes, it is time to set aside the schoolmasters. You might look like the servant for a time when you're both under tutelage, but then there comes a point where the heir becomes a son. Verse 7. Wherefore thou art no more a servant but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through faith. Howbeit then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God. So how, he says, how is it that when you did not know God, you did service to those who are not gods and you tried to do all of these things to please and to earn favor and to incur favor with all of these false gods. But now he says in verse 9, after ye have known God or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements? Why are you going back to some works-based system? Whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Do you want to be bound again to the, this sort of a system? Is that what you want? You want to go back to being and heir and, 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 and under tutors and governors instead of taking your place in, in liberty and in freedom? Ye observe, and notice what he says this bondage is. Ye observe days and months and times and years. And we'll clarify that more in Colossians. We'll be there in a minute. He says, I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Notice Paul's fear here. Having known the gospel of grace, they then turn back to the weakness of living under the external and ritualistic demands, ritualistic demands, excuse me, of conformity to a fleshly, earthbound manner of pleasing God, attempting to please God. Those are the foundations, to be sure. The character of God is the same. The things that we see in the Old Testament as they are reflected. Those, those principles, those, those reflections are for us today. God is still a God that hates uh, confusion. God is still a God that hates uh, uh, um, blasphemy. God is still a God that hates idolatry. God is still a God that hates lust. God is still a God that hates covetousness. God is still a God that hates lying. God is still a God that hates what he has always hated. But I am not bound by the system. I am bound by Christ. I am under a superior covenant. Now, we've done a lot of reading, but I want to go with one more place as we talk about this idea. We do not live under the reformation of the legal system. We function under an entirely different paradigm, a brand new system, and that's Colossians chapter 2. 
verses 1 through 23. You've been a trooper tonight. The Bible says this. For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you, and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. So he's saying what he's saying. He says, you've never seen my face. You don't know me. And because of that, there's this distance and there's not the normal kind of uh, uh, connection whereby I can appeal to that connection as a means by which for me to, uh, to, to, to stand before you in this way and correct you. He says, but I'm afraid that you have been beguiled by enticing words. What are these enticing words? He says, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, here's the warning, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of this world and not after Christ. For in him, that's Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. We see a similar warning here about the danger of philosophy and vain deceit. Systems built upon the traditions of men. Systems built upon the physical rituals of this world rather than after Christ. Systems that are built upon what you see and what you observe rather than what God has told you. Because in Christ dwells the fullness of Godhead bodily. He will go on to say, and he has said, we are complete in him. In Christ we have all and we abound when we need no more. Christ is in and of himself a complete system. We do not need to add to what he has said or take away from what he has said. He has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness in this covenant of grace. Verse 11. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having, forg- having forgiven you all Trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which is contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. We're going to come here again next week, but we're going to go farther next week with this. All the charges of transgression against us, which the law could levy against us because we have failed to live up to that system, which is holy and right and good, but utterly incapable of redeeming us. All of those transgressions and those charges were taken out of our way, were nailed to his cross. They do not stand before us any longer. That guilt and the shame and the weight and the, and the condemnation, they do not stand before us. They were nailed to Christ's cross. Verse 15. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you. And notice where he goes with this. The rudiments of the world, right? We already saw that. He already spoke about this idea of uh, of philosophies and vain deceits. He says in verse 16, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day, that's a holiday, or of a new moon. Or of the Sabbath days, 
which are shadows of things to come, but the body is of Christ. They are not of Christ. They are strange doctrines. They're foreign. They're foreign to Christ, which means they're foreign to grace, which means they're foreign to our foundation. We do not establish our heart in these things. This is not the establishing of our faith. This is not how we are made perfect in Christ. Verse 18. Oh, by the way, they are a shadow of things to come. So there is a purpose for them in, 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 in typologically showing us what is to come. We'll talk about that sometime when I preach through Colossians. Let no man beguile you of your reward, the reward in heaven, in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. Strange doctrines, right? Intruding into those things which they have not seen, vainly puffed up by their fleshly mind. Strange doctrine. And not holding the head, Christ, from which all the body by joints and bands having nourishment ministered and knit together increases with the increase of God. If you are following something other than your head, if my body follows someone else's head, I'm not going to have a good time. I'm not going to grow. I'm not going to be nourished properly. I'm not going to be able to functionally do what I need to do if my body is listening to someone other than my head. If your head was controlling my body, my body would not help my head do anything. If we, as the body of Christ, are submitting ourselves to some other head, to some other doctrine, to some other system other than grace, other than to that which is of Christ, then we are ineffective for Christ. We can't have it both ways. Verse 20, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why is though living in the world are you subject to ordinances? Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all to perish with the using. After the commandments and doctrines of men, strange doctrines, not the commandments and doctrines of Christ, the commandments and doctrines of men. Verse 23, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will, worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. The principles of external ritual, Paul says, are not inherently bad. They have a show of wisdom. They have a show of wisdom in that you are purposefully worshiping. There is, there is intentionality in, in these strange doctrines. There's humility. The idea there of humility not necessarily being divine humility, but the idea of I'm lowering myself before some teacher, right? These cults. I mean, you want to talk about a humble group of people the people that listen to these guys that are at the top of these cults and he can say no wrong, do no wrong, think no wrong. You have to humble yourself pretty good to get to the point where somebody can tell you to your face all of these things and you can just say, I must be wrong about everything. And there's something to be said for humility if God's the one that's telling you to your face you're wrong about everything. If the proper head stands above you, humility is a wonderful thing. Neglecting of the body. Paul says, I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. It's a, it's a good thing to keep your body under subjection and not satisfying the flesh. That's a good thing. A lot of false religious systems, a lot of strange doctrines, d doctrines demand an awful lot of that, don't they? Not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. But if that's what our heart is established in, it's a strange doctrine. It is not grace. Now, I've spent most of our evening reading passages of Scripture. Why? Unto what end? 
Well, we come back to our text. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. For it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. Now we're finished for today, but there's a lot more that needs to be said. And it will be said. You know me well enough to know that. The perspective from which we studied the nature of strange doctrines this week was the law, because Paul is speaking to a bunch of Hebrew listeners. And because he was speaking to a bunch of Hebrew listeners, that would be the thing that they would be most struggling with, no doubt. But, but we understand that the umbrella of diverse and strange doctrines goes well beyond just resubmitting oneself to the weak and beggarly elements of the Old Testament law, to any doctrine that is foreign to the principles of grace. And we haven't really covered those principles, only rather we've seen the strength of the New Testament epistles in relation to Paul's efforts to show what we have in Christ to be a new and a different way. So the next time that we're in Hebrews, what we need to do is we need to talk about what the doctrines of grace are. We need to establish those principles so that we can know what it is that we are to establish our hearts in. Don't establish your hearts in all of the rudiments of the world and whatnot. Okay, pastor, that's all well and good, but what does that mean? What do I establish my heart in? What, what, what is grace? Well, and that's what we're going to spend a little while talking about when we're back in Hebrews. But for this week, before we talk about the way that is grace, let's see that God has indeed called us to establish our hearts in this way. So that as we walk through the scriptures and we see what grace is, you are set and determined in your heart that you will align yourself with, that you will set your heart upon, that your heart will be established with grace. So that as you learn it, you can dedicate yourselves, root yourselves into a mindset that is determined to live it out in your life. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.